This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse Podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I am joined today by Grace Johnson, the special issues editor, the lord of the events calendar, and general purpose Door County Pulse Swiss Army Knife. How are you, Grace? I'm pretty good, Andrew. Thank you. You're welcome. Did I get your title correct? It definitely embellished a little bit, but yes. Oh, good. I thought I maybe missed a couple things, so that's good to hear. Uh, Welcome back to the podcast. If people listen to the last episode with Grace, we uh, have an update for the story on uh, Door County Book Fairs. We heard from a lot of people, which was cool. We kind of followed that rabbit hole a little bit, and Grace dug in and and learned some more about book fairs, so we'll we'll jump into that. But before we do, you must be exhausted from last week. Yes. Yeah, last week was a crazy one in our office. We had a lot of things going on. We had our, um, our regular newspaper, but we had a short deadline because of Veterans Day. And in addition, we were also finalizing our winter magazine, which went to the printer on Thursday. And we were also finalizing 8142 Review, which is our newest publication that also had to go to the printer on Thursday. So it was a lot. Right. The 8142 Review is our new literary magazine that you've been working on for several years now. Mm -hmm. Kind of got put on the back burner during COVID, uh, but now it is ready to go and people will be able to read it soon. That's where the HAL Prize is going to live. So if you submitted photography or writing or if you just can't wait to read the the submissions and the award winners, people will be able to see that soon. I don't want to give away too much, but uh, if you listen last week, I talked about how just like visually stunning the magazine is. It's very different, right? Miller, mm-hmm. our creative director, did a really great job on it. So excited to see it. Yeah, um, that was really fun. I am very appreciative to Ryan for everything that he did. This has been a, a very interesting experience for me because so far since I've come to the Pulse in um, 2014 as an intern, you know, everything that we've been doing has already been established and has had years of like revisions to make it, you know, to where we are today. But 8142 is you know, kind of starting that process over again. And it's the first time that I've kind of helmed something like that. So just pretty terrified about the entire process. And I mean, the day that we sent it to the printer, I mean, you know, hours before we had Ryan like flipping pages, like reordering everything, like just, you know, up until the very last hour trying to change it and make it, you know, kind of how we want. So I hope, I hope everyone enjoys it. Yeah, it'll be really cool when that comes out. I also want to jump back a couple of weeks because uh, between the last time you were on the podcast and now Halloween happened Mm -hmm. and you and your friends take Halloween very seriously Yes, and you go all out for your costumes Mm -hmm. and tell me what you guys did this year because uh, people can go check out not only like the behind the scenes of creating these costumes, but there's some pretty cool photography that Rachel Lucas took. Uh, mm-hmm. at the uh, Carrie's prom Halloween party. Yeah. And you two like absolutely blew the doors down with your costume. So mm-hmm. what did you Thank guys you. do for Halloween this year? Yeah. So this year we decided to take on a, a Halloween classic movie, Beetlejuice, Tim Burton movie. And um, it has kind of been one of those ultimate goals that we have had. Um, my best friend, Suzanne, Susie, and I, we typically do costumes together 
think it just makes it more fun and interesting being able to like work on something with somebody else. Um, and she's a very creative artistic person and I like kind of doing that kind of stuff with her. But since we've started really working on our costumes and trying to get more elaborate with them as we've gotten older, we have always discussed like we should do the looks from Beetlejuice. And if you are familiar with it, there is a part where we have the main characters, Adam and Barbara Maitland, who are uh, now deceased and they're ghosts and they want to get the new owners of their home out of the house. So they're trying to scare them and they sort of like warp their faces to make them look creepy. Barbara like pulls her face so her, you know, her top jaw and her bottom jaw come out to this like horrible sort of creature face and Adam, you know, extends his nose and has this weird like hand thing and has got his eyeballs on his fingers. And it has always kind of been an ultimate goal. Like, wouldn't that be cool if we could make that? Much more ambitious than just your, like, typical Beetlejuice costume. Yes. So when you say you guys did Beetlejuice, you did, like, maybe the most wild costume from the movie that you could. Yes, definitely. We didn't want to, um, you know, I mean, the characters' outfits are pretty, you know, just regular clothes. He's got, you know, khaki pants and a plaid shirt, and she's just in this very formless floral dress, which was actually very difficult to find something, honestly, that really went with that. Aside from, obviously, building our headpieces, that was probably, like, the second hardest thing to attain for the costume. But, yeah, it's kind of been a, a goal of ours, and... When we decided to do it this year, I'm like, wow, I can't believe we're actually going to attempt this. And we attempted it, and I think we succeeded, and uh, I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, absolutely you did. They're fantastic. You made them out of paper mache? Yes, a bunch of different materials. The base was mostly paper mache, which I recommend if people are doing like paper mache stuff, use the pulse. We found that ripping the paper vertically with whatever the grain is, it rips perfectly into just the exact size strips they want. So that's just like a little tidbit. But um, you got another use for the newspaper. I know it's got infinite uses. So we use like paper mache as the base. We had a lot of clay foam and paint and a sort of it's like a fast mache, which is kind of similar to paper mache. The material was like more like a bunch of ground up paper fibers that you kind of mix with water and use as like a paste that dries pretty quickly. Not super quickly though, because you told me that Mm -hmm. your mask was still wet. Yes. As per usual, Susie and I kind of come up with our ideas pretty well in advance and never actually start until it's like a little bit too late. You know, when you have, it's like beginning of September and you're like, okay, well, we've got like two months. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we have we got to do it tonight. Exactly. And that's pretty much what ended up happening. Like the two days and I had been gone the weekend before that party um, on a road trip and she had been gone for some family stuff. So we were really pushing those last like two days before the Halloween party to get it done. And you were staying up until like two o'clock in the morning the day before the Halloween party. It was about two o'clock in the morning and we were sitting there staring at my headpiece which was pretty much close to being done by then. Um, It hadn't been painted or anything at all yet, but we were still attempting to figure out how it was going to stay on my head because uh, these things were pretty heavy. Mine was not drying as well as Susie's did, and we couldn't figure out why. So we stared at it for about 30 minutes and couldn't figure anything out. So it wasn't until the day of the party that we put it back on and 
sort of jerry rigged a way to keep it on my head, but it was still pretty heavy. So uh, I had neck pains for like the next week and I still kind of had to hold it a bit, but there was still some of the paint on there when we went to the party that was wet. Some of the Mod Podge that we put on to kind of give like a shiny look to it that was still a little bit wet. So, you know. Well, a true artist suffers for their work. Yes. And these things turned out really, really cool. You can check them out in the the Pulse a couple weeks back, but they're also online. I think mm-hmm. we shared them on Facebook. So yep. uh, if you haven't seen the costumes yet, definitely check them out. Susie also put together a TikTok, which we posted online, kind mm-hmm. of showing behind the scenes how you made them. Yep. Uh, really, really cool and definitely a great inspiration for next year's Halloween as well. Mm-hmm. So let's jump into our recap. Uh, last time we were on the podcast, we just kind of had a very short side tangent about the the book fair, the Scholastic Book Fair. Mm-hmm. We both have really fond memories of it. And then I was curious if they still happen because it was kind of hard for me to imagine like the book fair being the way that it is. I mean, the, the book fair was what it was because most of us didn't have access to the internet in the same way that we do now. And it wasn't easy to just go online and buy whatever book you wanted. So you'd get this catalog and that would be like your wish list, and you'd go through and you'd select all the books that you wanted and then you'd order them. And then when the book fair came along, they would deliver them to your classroom and Hey, here's all my books. And then you could also go down to the fair and you could buy erasers and school supplies and cool stuff, but also they'd bring a bunch of books for you to just mm-hmm. peruse. I don't think I ever really did the catalog thing. I may have bought one. I think I bought the series of unfortunate events books, like box set, Mm -hmm. but I never did the catalog thing. I always went to the book fair itself. I definitely did both. I do remember buying, I want to say it was in seventh or eighth grade. I want to say that I bought, they had some sort of companion to the uh, TV show that was on Nickelodeon avatar, the last airbender. They had like a companion book with it that came with a lanyard that had like, all the the gang on there, like Aang, Katara, and Sokka, and all of them, that I begged my mom for because I had to have the lanyard. So I think I, I you know, definitely got some stuff from the catalog. I feel like I would get some books, but mostly I would get like the spy gear and like yeah. the invisible ink and the like cipher book, like those types of things. I always thought was fun. Not your not your best student when it comes to like reading but Mm -hmm. i really really enjoyed the book fair i just like going and seeing all of the books and that kind of stuff so we talked about it a little bit and i asked people to send us an email if they know if book fairs are still happening and we got a couple of responses Mm -hmm. so grace you jumped down the rabbit hole and you followed up on these things and you figured out maybe more than you wanted to know about the book fair so walk me through what you learned so there was a lot that i kind of talked about i primarily talked to mary zeller which is a correction. I apologize. I miswrote her name in my article that was in the paper. It's corrected online. There will also be a correction in this week's paper, but her name is Mary Zeller. She used to be a representative for the Scholastic Book Fair for sort of the uh, northeast region of the state, and she was kind of responsible for helping coordinate book fairs and things like that. So on that side of the conversation, I feel like I had... What's the right word? Your nostalgia was tainted a little yes, bit. Yes. I was going to say, as, you know, you have your realizations as an adult that you don't really think about as a kid when kind of approaching these things. And that is that it is a for-profit business and they have to make money. Right. Before we jump into that, let's go answer the question. Do book fairs still happen? Yes. And do they happen in Door County? Yes. So book fairs still happen. There was obviously COVID happened. So there was like a little bit of a sort of break here and they did a lot of online stuff. There were still some schools 
that had book fairs set up to start during COVID or like right when COVID started that had to kind of come down because, you know, they had these book fairs set up and there's nobody at school. So yes, they still do happen. And, and maybe I should just, for people who are unfamiliar with the book fair, younger people remember book fairs. Older people think of it as like a bookmobile that would come to your school. Uh, older Door County residents will remember the bookmobile. Mm-hmm. Um, and for everybody in between, it's basically where Scholastic comes with big metal trunks full of books mm-hmm. and they set them up on these like shelves and you can go and you can buy books. It was basically kids like every once a year or twice a year, however many times they happen, it was like your opportunity to buy books for fun, not mm-hmm. just books that you have to read for school. If you didn't go out to bookstores or you didn't have a local bookshop like I didn't, it was like your one time to buy cool books. Like I said, they'd send a catalog out like six months in advance so that you could pre-order your books and they'd deliver them to you. Otherwise, they would just bring a ton of cool books and you could go and buy them there. Usually, I think they were there for a couple of days uh, and then they'd pack up and move on and you'd wait patiently for the next book fair. The reason I thought it was weird that they're still happening is because now, of course, we think of like, oh, I can go online and get whatever book I want. I can download an ebook to my Kindle. So you, you don't necessarily think about like the book fair mm-hmm. uh, as being your one way to get books every year. But I digress. That's what a book fair is. Mm-hmm. They still happen. Where do they happen in Door County? Well, also just to touch on that just a little bit before Scholastic started their actual book fairs, they did just operate through their catalogs. So there also might be a generation in there that knows, like for Mary Zeller, who I talked to, for her when she was younger, they didn't have like the book fair yet, but they did do the book catalogs before transitioning. So Scholastic book fairs happen at schools. Primarily, you can get book fairs tailored to specific age groups. So Um, you know, elementary, kind of your middle or high school, the books are going to be different, the selections. Scholastic picks the books based on the age group. And those giant metal boxes that they come in, already all the books are in there in the order that they want them in. And it's basically just pop it open, put the locks on the wheels, and it's, you know, good to go. Right. Is there a representative from Scholastic who actually runs the book fair, or is that handled by the school? That's handled by the school. The representative is usually just there to kind of help coordinate, you know, different ways to promote the book fair, or if you are um, somebody who is planning one for the first time, their job is also to kind of help navigate the process. But once the uh, book fair is set up in the school. It's all up to the teacher who is running it, and it's usually volunteers. I visited the Sevastopol School's Scholastic Book Fair, and that was all volunteers running the cash register. So they do happen in Door County. Which schools, if you mm-hmm. remember off the top of your head, which schools actually do them? Currently, the schools that are doing book fairs would be Gibraltar, Sevastopol, and Southern Door. I don't know if... Gibraltar or Southern Door have any planned for this year or not yet? I'm guessing they probably will. Um, Sevastopol is the only one that's had one so far. Sturgeon Bay and Washington Island used to have them, but that kind of then falls into the uh, sort of disillusion of the childhood memories. That's where that starts to come in. Right. So let's let's jump into that. I think you and I both kind of with our rose tinted glasses think of the book fair as like a really great way to get books into the hands of children who may not otherwise have access to them and to a certain extent that is true but to maybe a greater extent there's more to it than that so walk me through what you learned about why certain schools get 
book fairs, the difference between different schools' book fairs, and also why some schools don't have them. Yeah, so um, talking with Mary, it was interesting because she has had um, experience in the book fair in different ways. Obviously, as a kid, she experienced it one way. As a parent, she has kids who, you know, so she's interacted that way. She was a librarian for a school and coordinated their book fairs before she became a representative. So she's seen it in all different kinds of forms. And one thing that she found that had changed on the sort of corporate side is that the book fair was started to get books to kids. And that started shifting a little bit as the years went on where the focus turned more towards the profit side. So that means schools that weren't making as much money on their book fairs no longer were getting book fairs. It wasn't necessarily that they had been blacklisted, like you can't do it, but the representatives and Mary expressed that she was encouraged to put her attention and focus on the schools that make the most money. Right. And so the difference between schools would be like, if your book fair brings in a lot of money, then they'll give you more books and they'll make it a bigger book fair. And if you don't bring in as much money, then they give you less books, which economically, I suppose, makes sense. But to the spirit of what the thing is, doesn't make sense. It seems like it should be the opposite. If your school's not bringing in a lot of money with the book fair, then you would think that you would kind of double your efforts, bring more books, really promote them, try to get kids to read. Because Mm -hmm. if if they're not buying books, then that tells me that either... A, it's a lower income school, in which case there should be programs to subsidize those books for those children, uh, or B, that it's not a, a very literate area. And therefore, the mission of the book fair is doubly important. Get these mm-hmm. kids to read. Uh, so give them more options. Make the book fair a more exciting event rather than being like, well, they don't buy a lot of books, so we're not going to give them as many options because that's just going to de-incentivize them to read at all. If, exactly. if the book fair comes and it's not exciting, then why would they pick up books? It's just when you have a, a school that's not bringing in a ton of profits, the more you lower their access to books, the less profits they're going to bring until they just stop. And that's the case with uh, Washington Island and uh, Sturgeon Bay. And for Washington Island, it was a little different. So, so yes, um, to your point, on the one hand, like as an older person now, I like understand the company obviously needs to make money to keep things moving along. But it, it seems a little unfortunate that there's no more programs offered to kind of help get those schools more access to these materials. And then in some cases, like Washington Island, it's not necessarily, I'm going to say, fault in, in big air quotes because it's never any school's fault for not having a book fair. But um, in their case, it was more of an inconvenience kind of thing. The logistics for them of getting the uh, book fair on the ferry sent over, set up, having to have somebody come take it down, truck it back over. And it was, uh, according to them, I guess, just not really worth it. But Washington Island did have uh, book fairs every other year. And I guess that makes more sense to me rather than reducing the like the quality of the book fair, reducing Mm -hmm. the time that it runs. Because if it does every other year, you still get two opportunities Mm -hmm. for the book fair. You might as well, like, hey, we're not going to do it every year, but we're going to give you a really great book fair every other year. That that makes more sense Well, in the case of Washington Island, too, like the actual, like, monetary threshold, I guess, that they were looking for in the profitability of the book fair 
Washington Island was hitting that for their size. You know, they were above it. It was just the inconvenience thing for Sturgeon Bay, who um, also hasn't been having book fairs different from uh, most schools in our county. They are separated into separate, you know, different buildings. I don't really understand personally how that becomes a detriment, I guess, to how well the book fair goes and how much is sold, you know, tailoring. But apparently, you know, it did have an effect and it just didn't work out. So there goes that book fair. Interesting. Anything else on the book fair that you learned before we move on? Mm -hmm. After talking, it was interesting because I talked to Mary in the morning and then later that afternoon I went to an actual book fair at Sebastopol. And after having that conversation with her and I had read a few things online earlier about it, it, you know, I was feeling very despondent about the whole thing, you know, like, why isn't this more what I want it to be or what I had it to be in my head. And then going there and there were a decent amount of kids there and they were having a blast. So I had that moment of there's all this stuff going on in the background that I don't agree with that I think there should be solutions to. But at the same time, the kids who are experiencing it, like they're having so much fun. It like brought me back. There were kids walking around with her friends, like trying to decide like, oh, should I get this one or should I get this one? You know, because you have your parents' money limits and things like that. Or, you know, check this out or look at this. And, you know, they still have all of the random, you know, pencils and eraser kind of thing. Definitely different than what we would have had. Um, I would say there was a lot of like mermaid stuff. More emoji stuff. Yes. And also the book selection was different. You have your kind of classic scholastic characters that you sort of see throughout, you know, like Captain Underpants and Diary of a Wimpy Kid, things like that. But a lot of the selections were more licensed material. So tie-ins to like TV shows and things like that. So yeah, I mean, we had that with like Pokemon was huge. Oh yeah, so it was huge. I'm, when in the pictures that I saw, I, st- I saw Pikachu again. Oh yeah, so he's, he's still there. there. But I'm sure like Marvel stuff, the Avengers are mm-hmm. crazy now. Yeah, and all the licensed material is definitely a little bit different, but it did feel there was more of that over anything else. Like I remember going and, you know, you saw your tie-ins obviously like before I was talking about like I bought an avatar tie-in book with a little lanyard to go with it. But there were more, you know, standalone stories or standalone series completely, you know, out of any sort of license. And I felt that there used to be more of that. And now the majority of it felt like the licensed material, which was different. And I don't really know how I feel about that. Yeah, I agree. But the kids were having a lot of fun. So that was really nice to see after kind of having one of those Ugh, adult oh, moments man. in the morning and you know everything is dark and terrible and you know the the man with a capital t or whatever but then seeing it like yeah that was so much fun yeah you know? seeing the kids the magic is still there for the kids so that yeah. is good mm-hmm. well awesome i'm glad that you were able to to jump into that and, and answer those questions uh, i hope people enjoy reading that story and and if other people were wondering you know people our age were wondering what the heck happened with those Mm-hmm. Now you know, they're still going on. And, yeah. and I, I hope that, you know, my son will be able to go to a book fair and have just as much fun as I used to. Yeah. 
couple more things I want to chat with you about uh, staying in with the the literary kind of feeling. It's November now, and yes. November is a big month for you because mm-hmm. you do NaNoWriMo, right? Yes, I usually do. I am debating if I'm going to do it or not this year. It's already, what day is it? It's the 9th now when we're recording this. Yep, you're, you're losing daylight. I'm ex- Exactly. So I kind of like need to make a decision if I'm going to do it or not. Well, let's say this. You attempt NaNoWriMo. I attempt. um, What is NaNoWriMo? Uh, NaNoWriMo, it stands for National Novel Writing Month. And as it sounds, it's a writing challenge where you try to write a 50,000-word novel in one month. And it is (laughs) definitely fun, uh, definitely stressful. But it's always been an enjoyable experience when I have participated. Have you ever completed one? Definitely not, no. I think the most words that I wrote was probably 6,000 words my soft, I want to say my sophomore year of college. Unfortunately for me, so I went to Lawrence University um, in Appleton, and most schools do like a two-semester kind of thing. Uh, Lawrence was on like a three-term or quarter, if you want to count the summer, system. So we were wrapping up our first term or quote semester in November, so in addition to attempting to write 50,000 words, it was also doing midterms, finals, all that. And then senior right. year came around and it was, okay, I have to finish my English major. I have to, I also had my uh, history seminar to finish my history minor. And it was, it was always the worst, the absolute worst time to be attempting uh, a 50,000 word novel. Right. So I would assume then that NaNoWriMo for you, and I would imagine for a lot of people, isn't necessarily about the finished product. Exactly. Right? It's about the the brain space that goes into it, the, the creating, just the exercise of yeah. it. There's a community that forms around it, I'm sure, mm-hmm. sharing mm-hmm. Their, uh, their struggles and trying to keep everybody motivated. I don't know that you're going to do it this year. You don't know that you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. But what is it like to actually embark on this challenge Mm -hmm. for you it's always been really fun like you said it's everyone that i have like worked with for nanoremo you know kind of like co-writing or collaborative writing whatever you want to call it i don't know no one has ever been like i have to get that fifty thousand word goal it's only ever been about creating good writing habits and i think that's the most important part of nano is it's just inspiring people to try their hand at writing, get creative. So for me, it was really fun to be able to, uh, you know, I used to write a lot of stories as a kid. Um, I would sit at our home desktop, you know, because everyone in the house shared one. We had dial-up still at the time, so I had to make sure my mom didn't have any important phone calls. But I would, like, come home from school, and I would just sit, and I remember I had this, it must have been, like, 30 or 40-some page document that I would just add a story to every single night and I wanted to kind of experience that again as an adult or a a young adult at the time when I first started participating but one thing that I really enjoyed doing was especially working with other people as you're writing you hit roadblocks like oh I don't know how that's like how should I get this character from A to B or this sentence doesn't sound right and I don't like it I would be with other people you can stop and say, hey, I need help. And everyone would stop what they're doing and spend like 10 or 15 minutes discussing your one sentence that you're trying to figure out, which is always really fun. So it's just for me about 
being with people that are excited about creativity, about the written word. For me and Nano, it really comes down to if I'm participating or not. I'm also a reader. So for me, it's kind of hard to decide in my free time, am I going to read or am I going to write? And it tends towards reading, not so much the writing, but, you know, I still have the story that I was working on last time. And I'm once November comes around, I'm like, mm, maybe I should continue working on that a little bit. And maybe eventually in a few years, I'll actually have something done. So we have Inktober in October. Mm, for, I love Inktober. Yeah, yeah. for artists. Mm-hmm. And then we have Nanarimo in November mm-hmm. for writers. I feel like we need more monthly challenges. Yeah. For all of that. Like there should be a, I don't know, thespian Thursdays in, <laughs> I don't know, September, where every Thursday you have to put on a short play. Oh, gosh. Or something for theater people. That'd be terrifying. I know. But there, there should be more monthly challenges for everybody. You wrote about your experiences in NaNoWriMo in this week's Pulse, so people can check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I Specifically, I talked to, I wasn't sure what I was going to write about this year. I usually try to do a, you know, recommendations kind of thing for things to do. So what I did was I contacted the Creative Writing Club at Lawrence, which I used to be a part of because they always come up to Bjork London for a weekend. And... Um, I'm glad that I reached out when I did because they happened to be at Bjork Linden like that weekend. It was the last weekend of October and they were all kind of like starting it off. So I went and I spent, I was with them for maybe like an hour and a half chatting about what they were doing. And most of them, this had been their first time participating. So I tried to use that conversation to kind of come up with the advice, you know, based on what these first timers were like, what their struggles were and, you know, things like that as they were approaching it for the first time. So Sweet. Well, look forward to reading uh, that piece in this week's Pulse on Friday. It's never too late to jump into NaNoWriMo. Uh, It just means that you have to write more in a quicker amount of time. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I feel like this episode has been a kind of holistic look at Grace Johnson's life and what you do with your time. Mm -hmm. So when you're not writing, you're reading. When you're not reading, you're making costumes with Susie. And mm-hmm. when you're not doing that, you're doing Pilates, I guess, which I think is the last thing that we'll talk about this uh-huh. week. Uh, you jumped in to, to write about your experience with Pilates. Yes. Which came out of left field for me, but why? Why did you want to do Pilates? Well, uh, I wasn't anticipating doing Pilates or anything. I am not much of a workout person you know i and i more so enjoy activity based kind of exercise stuff but there was um, a press release that had come in and a sevastopol alumna had moved back to the county and was opening a pilates studio and i was like oh you know that's kind of interesting and i was reading more about what it was that she was offering and one of the things that i talked about was it was a good option for like low impact exercise and I have always had really bad trouble with my knees ever since high school and like my hips and then last year I shattered my elbow um, which still gives me trouble all the time so I am trying to you know after a year of being sedentary find something that really worked um, for me that felt good like getting back into movement so I was like well you know go check it out she was offering free classes I'll you know write about it and see what it's about and I went and I loved it. Awesome. So Pilates yeah. is great for people with old bones. Yes, I guess. <laughs> would you would you say that you have old bones, Grace? <laughs> I, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. I have still yet to figure out, you know, what was the uh, 
you know, my bad knees came from, but whatever. So where was the class that you took? They are, it's called Dorcani Pilates, and they are located in the Fairfield building in Surgeon Bay, which is down on 3rd Ave. She has a very small studio space, which I really liked. So she teaches reformer Pilates, first off, which is slightly different than regular Pilates. So her studio is usually meant for like four people at once. So it's a very small and more intimate space which I liked. It wasn't as terrifying. You know, you're like in a crowd of 20 people who may have been like doing this before. Like I took body pump for like half a year, which is great. But, you know, you're in a room filled with a bunch of other people that have been doing like this weightlifting class for however long. And you're just like, you know, like try to keep up with everybody. But it was definitely a nicer experience. Good. And for people who don't know what Pilates is, like myself, Mm -hmm. describe what's your elevator pitch? What is Pilates? What is Pilates? Well, I'm also fairly new to what Pilates is. Like most exercise styles, it's usually based on like a specific tenant. For Pilates, it is all about like core strength and balance. So usually like mat Pilates, which I think is what most people think of. It's, you know, you're doing all the moves like on a mat. um, I knew that guy in high school, Matt Pilates. (laughs) He was a cool guy. (laughs) Hi, my name is Matt Pilates, and welcome to my law firm. Oh, gosh. Reformer Pilates is on a machine, which is a little different. And the way that the owner, Michelle, kind of described it, it's assistance and resistance. So the assistance part is what makes it really great. If you have trouble with your joints or anything like that, it really helps because it's sort of like this box that has a platform that you sit on that slides back and forth but it has these tension coils in it that you can like hook on to add more resistance, you know, based off of your skill level. So like she says, I feel like a lot of people think if you have use assisting equipment in your exercising that it doesn't work as much. So like one of those like rowboat machines? Rowboat machines. Like at the gym where you sit and you can like... Oh, like a rowing machine? Yeah. Like, yeah, the it, ones where you like pull yes. the cord and yes. you like... Is it like that? Yeah, it's kind of similar to that. Okay. Um, you there's like a bar where you can use uh you put your feet up and you know you like push away it has straps that you can use to like grab onto for like arm movements all that kind of stuff i've never used one before it's hard to describe (laughs) hi i'm matt pilates and this is my wonderful machine (laughs) i mean exactly it's you know i mean it's it's like a box and with a slidey platform and it's it's other than it being you know uh, the movements and everything, like I felt it afterwards, like my legs were the next day, I'm like shaky and I could feel the, I could feel my body and my muscles again. Um, it was also just kind of fun to use, especially when we were doing like arm stuff. Cause you'd have these bands and you'd pull them and you'd go sliding back and sliding forward. And I don't know why I was just very entertained by that. So who is Pilates for? I think anybody could do Pilates really, honestly, based off of the uh, introductory class that I took. Like I said, there's only four spots and I feel like everybody who was there with me was all at a very different level of their fitness journey or why they were there. You know, we had somebody who was older and she had gone, she uh, was doing like physical therapy and her physical therapist is like, you need to work more on like core strength stuff. So that's why she came because Pilates is all about strengthening your core and getting your balance. There was a younger a younger girl there and her mom and, you know, myself who has always had, you know, issues, but everybody was able to 
complete the workout with maybe like minimal issues, but I think it could really work for any level of fitness. Sweet. Are you going back? Uh, yes, I am definitely signing up for more classes, especially over the winter. Like I said, COVID was a year of being very sedentary. And sometimes I forget, even though we're kind of out and about again, that I can actually like leave my house and go places because I just got so used to like, okay, do work, go home, stay home and trying to get out of that habit again. But I would definitely recommend it. Awesome. Well, there we go, everybody. That's a, uh, a look into the life of Grace Johnson. Woo-hoo. Reading, writing, doing Pilates. <laughs> so, Grace, what a thank life you. I, live. I know, right? Thank you for coming on and chatting and, yeah. and updating everybody on some of the stuff that we've been talking uh, about for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that we don't have a, a solid release date for the 8142 review, but when mm-hmm. it does come out, uh, I'm looking forward to everybody getting a chance to read it, mm-hmm. uh, checking out the How Prize winners and everything. Yep. Uh, what's next, Grace? What are you off to next? I'm going to a program at Right On today. Awesome. Well, um, it'll be too late for people to join you there by the time this podcast comes out. That is very true. But uh, I hope you have a good time there. Yeah, I'll say hi to your wife. Perfect. Thanks for, for coming on, Grace. And, uh, Thanks. Talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.